Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Hi, I'm Bill Cloud, general surgeon, chief medical officer at Baptist Memphis. Well, guys, today we are so excited to have on the show uh, Dr. Caroline Fife. Uh, we have been waiting a long time to have her on on the podcast, and today we're going to be talking about uh, wound care, uh, quality improvement in wound care, and, and what it, wherever the conversation leads us. But, but Dr. Fife, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so thank you guys for having me. I'm really honored to be in this auspicious company. My uh, grandfather would say I'm strutting in high cotton today, uh, so I appreciate the opportunity. I'm board certified in family medicine, but for 35 years, I've been practicing wound care. Like a lot of wound specialists, I fell into it. Um, of course, everybody expects that wound care docs are going to be surgeons like you guys, but it turns out so much of wound care is internal medicine with boo-boos. Because every patient with a chronic wound has a reason that is almost always systemic due to their medical underlying conditions. So I like puzzles and wound care is a great way for somebody to have a career that involves solving puzzles. So it has suited me well. I'm a professor of geriatrics at Baylor. I had 23 years as a professor of, uh, in, interestingly, in the anesthesia department at UT um, at the McGovern uh, UT School in Houston. Um, and I'm also the chief medical officer of a company called IntelliCure that runs the largest uh, registry of chronic wounds and their treatments. And we spend a lot of time doing comparative effectiveness studies from real world data. And we also create quality measures uh, working with CMS that are specific to wound care. That's also a big need. Happy to talk about any of those things if the topic arises. No, so so that's fantastic, and uh, I love the fact that you said that you love puzzles because I love puzzles. That's part of the reason I went into medicine. You know, was I liked figuring things out and figuring yeah. out problems. And so I have never thought of wounds as a puzzle. Um, tell me, tell me what you mean by that. And let me uh, tell you, and, and I, let me get excited about wound care. Yeah, so absolutely. I would love uh, for you to, to get excited about it. You know, when I was on the faculty at UT, the dermatology residents would come one day a month and I would present cases to them. And they said it was their favorite rotation because um, uh, w here's, here's bad grammar, but good medicine. Wounds don't not heal for no reason. And the reason is very rarely just to do with the wound. You know, you do fistulas. I know you guys who are surgeons know that there are times that you just got to fix the wound. But most of the time, if it's chronic, not a surgical complication, the problem is with the patient. And it you can work your way through the Merck manual of rare diseases every year in a wound center if you just keep your eyes open. Patients with undiagnosed uh, underlying systemic inflammatory diseases with Ehlers-Danlos, oh my goodness, these surgical dehiscences, they turn out to have genetic conditions that no one has noticed, even though they've had four spontaneous bowel ruptures. And no one's ever said, God doesn't hate you. There has to be a reason why this keeps happening. So it's just fascinating if you can walk into a wound center and look at the patient. And the sad thing is, you know, 
16% of Medicare beneficiaries have a chronic non-healing wound. Does that surprise you? Like it is wow. more prevalent than, than heart wow. failure, than cancer. It is a huge percentage of the Medicare population. And we spend $95 billion on it a year. How about that for a number? It's staggering how much money is spent. And most of these patients are in service nearly a year for a chronic non-healing wound. That's also mind-blowing. So you have all this vast, big, expensive, very high-tech stuff that you can put on the wound. And then we miss vitamin D deficiency, which can be corrected for 10 bucks. So that's one frustrations, one of the big challenges, and part of the fun is walking in and saying, okay, I get it that they've put every fancy product on you that is out there for six months, but why don't we get some nutritional labs and kind of see where you are from the standpoint of your vitamin D. So uh, sometimes the fixes are are, um, embarrassingly easy, and uh, part of the problem is that since wound care isn't a a recognized medical specialty with a training program, it's very spotty. You'll get somebody who's just, we all basically do our own residencies ourselves just by bumbling our way around and learning from our uh, colleagues, which is not the best way <laughs> to create uh, a high um, standard in any kind of practice. So we're about 50 years behind where emergency medicine was and even family medicine. I remember family medicine hadn't been a specialty for that long in 84 when I started my residency. So we've got a few decades to catch up on just to try to standardize some of that. But all that to say is as any specialty in medicine, if you keep your bring your intellectual curiosity, you can always do a better job. I am involved, as you know, Caroline, with a lot of the quality uh, measures here at Baptist Memphis. And um, we have been challenged with uh, a particular type of wound that that is referred to as a pressure injury. And I want you to talk a little bit about uh, your thoughts about pressure injury wounds. I would love to, although I'm very, some of my thoughts are very controversial. Uh, so I am not towing the party line on this, <laughs> but we, that's we don't, okay. We don't shy away from controversy. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes. So, uh, you know, talk good about me, talk bad about me, but talk about me. So I think this will, this is a great subject. And um, there's a revolution in thinking about what we used to call bed sores, and then we called them uh decubitus ulcers and now then we called them pressure ulcers and now we're calling them pressure injuries and um, there's a lot of politics behind that name those names Uh, some of it's uh, thoughtful in terms of trying to get people to understand they can happen in patients not just because they're at bed rest but some of it is part of the blame game that troubles me Mm -hmm. deeply and so while it is true that there are a lot of iatrogenic things that good protocols can uh, either reduce dramatically or maybe get rid of. Most hospitals have done a bang up job with keeping people's skin dry, doing the interventions nutritionally, things that you would expect would decrease the incidence of whatever we want to call this. And I'll get back to the naming in just a second, pressure injuries, pressure um, ulcers. But I will say that most hospitals in America have reached a threshold of about 10% pressure injuries that they haven't been able to get below. 
In other words, great strides made, and now we're stuck. And there was even a fascinating study that a lot of people aren't aware of. A woman who was interested in elder abuse, um, Dr. Mosqueda in California, got the California Department of Justice a decade ago to fund a prospective trial where they identified the highest performing nursing homes in California, Oregon, and a couple of other states. And they documented that they did the best care possible in these nursing homes. And they still had 24 patients that developed stage four pressure ulcers, usually in conjunction with their uh, final uh, days on earth. And she was not a wound care doc. She was interested in pressure ulcers that form as a result of elder neglect and abuse. And the question she was interested in was, is the presence of a pressure ulcer a priori evidence that someone was neglected? And the Department of Justice funded this study, and the conclusion they came to is no. Pressure ulcers can happen under the very best care that we can possibly give, which to me says there's some factor that we're missing. We've done mm -hmm. all the things. We've gone as far as we can go with keeping skin dry, turning, um, nutritional supplementation, the usual protocols that hospitals implement, and they're not good enough to prevent a certain percentage, uh, many cases, the worst possible kind of pressure injury, which means we've been missing something. So the reason that I think that matters is uh, I can actually tell you a very interesting story about how I sort of fell into this, but I'm not the only one who's noticed it. Um, the reason for beginning to call these pressure injuries was laudable in some ways because not all of them are open sores. And the reason that I say boo-boo sometimes, I'm not trying to be condescending. As you guys know, as surgeons, wounds, as far as Medicare, CMS, as far as coding is concerned, you get a wound because you hurt yourself or a surgeon does it to you. Whereas ulcers are considered chronic non-healing problems. So mm -hmm. yes, I could hit my leg on the open dishwasher door and six months from now, it's no longer supposed to be considered a traumatic wound. It's a chronic non-healing ulcer. So there is a distinction and we don't have an English term that encompasses all of both wounds and ulcers. We tend to use the word wound because it's lay language that we all understand. But pressures comes into this category that's supposed to be like venous ulcers, like diabetic foot ulcers, a chronic problem, not because I had an accident or because somebody took a scalpel to me. I just wanted to make that distinction. They fall into two buckets in sure. the coding book. Um, so the problem with calling them injuries is that these are, this is one of the most common reason for malpractice litigation in the U.S., <laughs> And the attitude we have is if the nurses would just do their darn job, they wouldn't happen. <laughs> you know, there's this blame. There's money attached in a in a nursing home. If one of these occurs, the nursing home is going to pay a financial penalty unless they can prove that they gave exactly the care that was needed in order to mitigate all of the risk factors. Caroline, I'm, I'm, the blame I'm gonna, game you know, isn't working. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you one time. What do you what do you think drove that? That, OK, your, your loved one developed a decubitus ulcer, pressure injury, yeah, whatever, happy, you wh whatever you want to call it. So now it goes from they have it and, and so you're responsible for it or somebody that means yeah. you did not do something that you were supposed to do to prevent it. I think part of the problem, well, first of all, 
Florence Nightingale is the first person who said that if you see a bed sore, it's uh, uh, it's because there was nursing, bad nursing care. You know, so Florence Nightingale said that 100 plus years ago. So we've had this attitude for a long time. But I think part of the problem is because they're horrific. They, they're visually terrifying. Think about all the times that we've sent someone into heart failure iatrogenically. And yet, have you ever heard of anybody getting sued over iatrogenic heart failure when it happens frequently? Same thing with iatrogenic renal failure. I've never seen a lawsuit over iatrogenic renal failure, and yet it happens. But when it's the skin and it looks terrible, people are looking at that family members and saying, oh, my God, who's responsible for this mess? So I think part of the reason really is the visual um they're just frightening. They're smelly. They're scary. And, and they're devastating to see. And m many of the other things that can be complications of medicine are not visual in the same way. But I would say there's been an attitude of that neglect is the reason for a hundred years, literally, that is a difficult thing for us. And, and, and here's the problem. It is true that neglect can be the reason for a pressure ulcer. It, that's not false. It's just that it doesn't have to be. And we don't have that. Now our challenge is proving that it wasn't our fault, which is never the place you want to be when it comes to litigation. <laughs> I was going to ask you, uh, Caroline, you know, <clears throat> when we talk about pressure injuries or bed sores or decubiti, it's reported out in an observed over an expected ratio. Yes. So that, that, that means that, OK, you had this many and you were expecting to have this many. So yep. a certain percentage of patients are expected to potentially develop uh, a pressure injury. How much opportunity is there for us? Let's let's assume, as you said, we're keeping the skin dry. We're, we're trying to do all the care driven protocols that we can. How much opportunity is there on the documentation side? And and I hate to say it's it's like playing a game, but how do you how much opportunity do we have to play the game and to document correctly so that uh, we can risk adjust and, and increase Boy, there's that a, expected number? A lot of ways that we shoot ourselves in the foot when it comes to documentation. There's no question. But I want to I want to answer that previous question a little better than I did in how sure. we got here. Part of the reason we're stuck in the documentation did to did not battle goes back to 2005. And in 2005, Congress told Medicare, you guys need to figure out what kinds of problems uh, could be uh, the result of uh, suboptimal care in hospitals that better protocols could fix. And that's how we came up with this list of they said, find two or three things. They found seven, eight, depending on how you count them. And they ended up with a, a, a list of serious adverse events, which included giving somebody the wrong blood product, operating on the wrong body part. You remember this, air embolism. Well, somehow people got the idea that pressure ulcers were on that list of never events. Not true. Never happened that way. Pressure ulcers were in the list of a lot of other things like surgical site infections that protocolized care could make an impact on, but which we understand are possibly going to happen. So I, I just want to go on record as saying when you hear pressure ulcers are never events, they're not. They were not included in the serious adverse event list in 2005 that was implemented in 2007. 
But that's partly how we got to this place because they uh, are no longer when you have major comorbidities or when they contribute to a major comorbidity, it reduces the hospital payment rate. So the hospital has to be able to say they were present on admission or the nursing home has to be able to say they were present on admission. So it wasn't our fault. Otherwise, if it occurs while they're in the hospital, we have to bear the burden of cost during this hospitalization. Wanted to clarify that because a lot of people are familiar with that legislation. That then took us to the criteria for deciding whether or not there was a level of responsibility from the hospital. And one of those criteria had to do with, and that's where we get into this word that uh, this phrase that they call um, uh, 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 preventability or uh, avoidability, I should say. The concept of avoidability came out of the nursing home world where the idea was that you would uh, identify all of the risk factors for a pressure ulcer and then create a care strategy to mitigate those risk factors. And if the patient got a pressure ulcer anyway, then you go, we were off the hook. So that means that's all a documentation legal discussion. Did we identify their risk factors? Did we put a treatment plan in place? Did we carry out the treatment plan? Then you have this legal argument about, um, about uh, avoidability. People get this idea of avoidability and medical unpreventability conflated. Avoidability is a payment term that is all around the documentation, Dr. Mason, just as you were commenting. But medical unpreventability is really a little bit of a separate discussion, which is, were there things going on with this patient that it wouldn't have mattered what we did? We were going to end up in this mess. And it's helpful sometimes to, to, to separate those two, but documentation can help either way. Once you see a patient who's got hypotension, hypoalbuminemia, um, and all these other risk factors, which we can talk about, but I think most people are familiar with them, we could help ourselves a lot if somebody would sit down and write on the chart, boy, this patient's at high risk for a medically unpreventable skin breakdown. We're going to do our best as follows, but we can't guarantee that that will mitigate all of the risk factors because there's so many of them. So I just want to set the stage for why documentation ends up mattering because it can be a legal conversation that has to do with payment policy. But also, we don't want to imply that all we care about is not getting sued. We, we, we'd like to do whatever we could do to make patients safer. But well, the frustrating thing is when you have somebody who ruptures an abdominal aortic aneurysm and has what you guys would know, 80% likelihood of death, you save them. They end up with a pressure ulcer in the ICU and you get sued for that. When you saved a patient that was not expected to live, your reward is a lawsuit. That's the stuff that pisses me off and that we have to figure out how to change the conversation about. Sure. Carolina, one of the things that uh, you had shared earlier and, and written about were, were your thoughts about the pathophysiology of of these uh, of these problems, and, and it involved a personal story. And uh, I just wondered it was it, it was fascinating to me about how you stumbled onto um, you know looking at taking a second look at the pathophysiology of pressure ulcers. Uh, I just thought. Maybe you'd like to share I would that. love to tell that. Yeah. So this is all comes under the category of God has a sense of humor, because when I tell you the story, you're going to think she made it up. 
So I had a patient uh, who was, you know, BMI in, I think, 40, 41, who was, you know, 40 years old, had a MI, ended up with buttock necrosis. We'll get back to that in a second. But I began to realize there was a reason for the fact the fleshy part of his buttocks developed pressure ulcers. Everybody's seen that, by the way, but it doesn't fit with what they tell us as the physiology. So I'm sitting at my computer trying to write this up, thinking, I don't need this headache. I don't need to tackle this. I'm going to butt up heads with the NPIAP. And I was keeping myself busy because my 25-year-old son was in surgery, 22-year-old son at the time. And he was having a congenital a jaw uh, deformity corrected. And he came out of the OR, a totally healthy kid, except for this cosmetic surgery that he needed. Uh, he came out of the surgery, jaws wired shut, hand him a piece of paper and say, what hurts? And he writes on the paper, what did you do to my heel? So I'm pulling off the little pink pad they put on there that's supposed to prevent pressure ulcers. And he's got a stage one pressure ulcer on his left lateral heel and a stage one pressure ulcer on his right lateral malleolus. Just as I was saying to myself, I should leave this whole pressure ulcer thing alone because all I will get for it is grief. Nobody cares. And so the surgeon comes in and I said, I'm confused. I assume you had to rotate him from left to right during this surgery because he's got pressure ulcers on the lateral heel and the lateral ankle. And the surgeon said, no, he was supine the entire time, completely immobilized because I needed no movement at all. And he had wedges at the back of his heels to keep his heels off the, the, the OR table. So as I'm sitting there in his room, I had up the angiosome map that plastic surgeons, and I bet you guys too are familiar with, we've known about it for more than 50 years. You know, angiosomes are three-dimensional blocks of tissue supplied by a named artery and vein. And your whole body is a three-dimensional patchwork quilt of these uh, blocks of tissue that um, are, are, are large, uh, largely are served by vessels large enough that they do have names. So we know uh, that I'm sitting on blocks of tissue supplied by my inferior gluteal artery. I'm lying on blocks of tissue supplied by my superior gluteal artery, not to mention all the ones on my back. And I realize that there's only one explanation for how you could have someone flat on their back end up with a lateral heel and lateral ankle injury. And the only way is if you cut off the supply of the lateral calcaneal and the lateral malleolar arteries at the back of the Achilles with a wedge. In other words, the wedge blocked the arterial supply temporarily of those two areas. And they, they, the jumping point for them is millimeters apart. So all you need is the wedge to be in slightly different position in the left leg than the right leg. And on one side, you knock out the lateral malleolar. And on one side, you knock out the lateral calcaneal artery. In other words, the only way you can get a pressure injury when there is no pressure is if it's vascular and the pressure was proximal to the thing you are looking at. And that's been the missing piece, I think, for 50 years, 100 years in pressure injury formation is that the, the tissue discoloration that you see, 
the pressure that caused it might have been pressure on the vascular supply, either the arterial or the venous. Honestly, you could argue it either way. That was several millimeters, maybe even inches away. And there's been a very strange increase in heel pressure ulcers, despite all of the wedges and the mitigations that have been put in place in the OR. There's been a spike in those that nobody's been able to explain. My own hospital has talked about it. Why, when we are doing all these things and we know the heels are off the bed, why do we see this? And the answer is because we're knocking off the supply with the wedge. So that then becomes the explanation for how you can get someone whose fleshy part of their buttocks ends up necrosing, which we do see. I know you've seen that. Well, there, you know, the the traditional explanation for a pressure ulcer is that it's compression of the capillary bed between the support surface and a bone. Well, I don't have any bones on the fleshy part of my derriere. There has never been a good explanation for how the fatty part of your butt cheeks could necrose, but they sure can if it was the lateral sacral artery, uh, the parasacral arteries that have the pressure because those are the ones that supply the curvature of your butt cheek. So, yeah, they had pressure, but not on the butt itself, on the sacral area. That has tremendous implications in two ways. One is how we mitigate things. And the fact that you don't have to have direct pressure to get an ischemia reperfusion injury or even a full-fledged pressure ulcer somewhere. But the other means that the key factor is your blood pressure. That is the real thing. So I call for my son's anesthesia records and they're letting his mean arterial pressure ride it, like at 52. Well, he had such poor perfusion. It's amazing. It's only because he was a 22-year-old healthy kid that he did okay. When you go back and you look at these patients who develop problems in the OR or patients in the ICU, their lowest diastolic is very low and their mean arterial pressure is very low. So, and yet, have you ever seen a mitigation strategy to prevent pressure ulcers that involved evaluating the mean arterial pressure or trying to improve it. I've never seen one. If you guys have one at your hospital, then I want to write an article about you for the wound care magazine. No, I mean, we, we certainly think about keeping the pressure up to protect the heart, the kidneys, the brain. But as yeah. far as thinking about the perfusion to the skin, that that's really. And tell never, me, never quick, thought about. quiz question. What's the largest organ of the body? Skin. Skin. The skin. <laughs> you bet. I know that one. But no, but yeah. That was a great anecdote, and it it certainly highlights the lack of knowledge I have about wound care and what causes wounds. And you mentioned earlier that you you, know, you kind of fell into wound care and you had to create your own residency and do your own learning, and that that's the same for everybody out there. So I, I wanted to just get a sense of what is the state of uh, you know a curriculum related to wound care and the science of it currently. Where is it? Where does it need to be? Uh, certainly an in internal medicine residency, when we saw a wound, we consulted wound care or sent it to the surgeon, didn't know anything about how to work it up or what to do with it. Uh, it was just completely outside of our scope of practice. And I'm, I'm learning that even our, our, our esteemed surgeons on the other side aren't experts always in, in what creates a wounds and how to treat them. So take us through where are we with the science of it and, and the training? 
Yes, yeah, so we're 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 not in a good place. I'll tell you that we have left this to the nurses, and you know I I think we ought to go ahead and admit that. In fact, the one thing that I said after I had done the um, you know I wrote a paper up about this buttock issue. I wrote the paper up about the heels, and and my husband, my late husband, God rest his soul, was an OB/GYN, and and I I said to myself, let's think about what happened in the field of OB. Um, for hundreds of years, women, midwives were able to keep the maternal mortality rate at somewhere between three and five percent, which is pretty darn amazing for when you think about how far back we have records. You know, before we understood the germ theory, nurse midwives knew to wash their hands. <laughs> so hats off to them. But you know what they couldn't do? They couldn't do much about a malpresentation. They could do nothing about placenta previa. You know, they could do there was they couldn't do a C-section. We didn't have antibiotics. All right. In a span of 40 years, you get uh, blood transfusions, antibiotics and anesthesia. With blood transfusions, antibiotics, and anesthesia, now the maternal mortality rate is less than 1%, and that's where it sits. In other words, good nursing care could do amazing things until you end up with a medical problem that can't be fixed with good nursing care. So the one thing that talking about hypotension could do for us is get doctors engaged again in pressure injury formation, where we can say, guess what? We're talking about mean arterial pressure. We're talking about oxygen carrying capacity. We're talking about your uh, PO2, your uh, VO, the oxygen delivery to your tissues. The docs ought to be able to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds like something I'm supposed to do. So if we could just get past this, if those nurses would just do their, their job, we'd be fine and get people talking again about skin physiology, we could start making progress. So I think we're going to have to just decide ourselves that we're going to have to fix this problem. And if the reason is because we don't want to get sued, so be it. <laughs> we can still make things better for patients. So that's a partial answer to your question about how are we going to do this? And the answer is we're just going to have to do it because there's not going to be a national approach to this. In fact, I think the national approach, God bless the nurses for how far they've come to get rid of the things that patients sitting in urine, uh, not people not eating and us not paying attention. All of those things are vital. But if we've done them all and we still have a problem, then it's time for us to sit up and say, let's talk about tissue perfusion and figure out what we need to do next. Is that a partial answer at least? Do you, sure. I mean, that, that's a great answer. And, and you know, do you think are we going to be able to come up with modalities? I, I know that we have ways that we can actually measure kind of skin perfusion and tissue perfusion. But do you th are we going to be able to come up with treatments that when you have a patient who's on levofed in in the you know and their their mean arterial pressure may be where it needs to be, but their skin and peripherally they're still super clamped down. Are we going to be able to come up with modalities you think that could offset that? I don't know if we can come up with modalities to offset it. I do think there are things we could do better because I think if we just have some awareness. Um, you, you know, for example, permissive hypovolemia, you know, we, we've developed this approach because transfusions are expensive and somewhat dangerous. And we've decided people could probably manage better than we thought. Well, that came out of the military. 
But we've got to realize there's a point at which this might be the reason people are getting pressure ulcers. So if we go into it with our eyes open and say, okay, here's the risk of this kind of intervention with, you know, if we're going to allow somebody to have a hemoglobin of six, then one of the things we sacrifice might be their skin. If we go into it proactively and tell the family, okay, here's what the risk is for a transfusion and for fixing this. Here's the risk if we don't, then at least people don't feel like we were asleep at the wheel. We could start to have some value-based conversations about what the right way to intervene is. And here's the part I like from the standpoint of medical legal. Um, Right now, we've got some folks that are doing some prospective studies to try to understand what is that threshold for mean arterial pressure or lowest diastolic, below which you can't know that the skin's going to stay intact. Well, what if we, as your hospital system said, all right, make up a number. I'll make it up. Like uh, mean arterial pressure less than 54. We uh, All bets are off. We can't guarantee it's going to be okay. And I made up that number. Don't imply that I know something that I don't. But what if we did? Well, then if we can't make it better than that, then now we have an argument about medical unpreventability, don't we? Where we said, hey, our plan was an oxygen carrying capacity of at least 15 grams per deciliter and a mean arterial pressure of X and a lowest diastolic of Y. And this patient is so sick, we can't get there. So everyone needs to know that we can't guarantee the fact that the skin will stay intact. And if it isn't, it's not because we didn't do our best. Mm-hmm. But think about all the patients. We could have given them a couple of units of blood. It would have been okay. You know, we could have done better with volume replacement. In fact, just to tell you how simple it might be, a friend of mine is in the little Natchitoches Hospital in Louisiana. And, you know, sometimes small hospitals give you opportunities to see cause and effect better than big hospitals. And they were implementing a sepsis bundle that involved having alert patients drink more fluids. And during that time, they had no pressure ulcers. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, what if it's that simple <laughs> for lots of patients who are alert? Like, here's a jug that's graduated. If you just drink this today, then you'll have done your part. And I also find when I'm talking to family members, they are desperate to find some way to help, but they don't know what. And if the answer is get them to drink this jug, like, and it really matters. We're not just giving you silly, you know, busy work. Like if they drink this jug, they might not get a pressure injury. How simple is that? There are hospitals that are doing that now. So what if it didn't have to be high tech? What if we started low tech and said, we're just going to try to keep the hemoglobin up, the blood pressure up and the volume up? Well, how about we just start there and see what kind of implication we have? You know, you can't get we couldn't get doctors to wash their hands until the germ theory, right? That's why Semmelweis went insane because he got rid of puperial fever by getting doctors to wash their hands, but they wouldn't keep washing their hands because they didn't understand why hand washing mattered. Ten years later, the germ theory comes along there. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense why we need to wash our hands. So this is the problem. If you can't get the pathophysiology right, then you don't implement uh, strategies that make sense to get rid of it. Mm. Well, Dr. Fife, uh, we would love to continue on, but we uh, need to bring it to a close. And, and this has been a great, great conversation, very stimulating. Um, you know, for our listeners out there, if um, 
if you want to learn a lot more about wound care, you can go to carolynfeifemd.com. Dr. Fife Caroline, has Carol, a, Carol, Caroline, the old-fashioned way. Caroline yeah. uh, has a, a blog out there, and uh, I would encourage you guys to go out there, and, uh, you know, it's a great resource. And Dr. Fife, once again, on behalf of Baptist, we thank you so much for being here, and uh, hopefully we can have you on uh, again. I would love to. Thank you for letting me blather on for so long. Dr. No, Cloud, I really appreciate you taking a risk with uh, letting me open my mouth. And, 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 and thanks to Dr. Cloud. Dr. Cloud's a guest on our on our podcast today, and he, he was the one who uh, was instrumental in getting Dr. Fife on the show. So thank you, Bill. Thank well, you for having me, fellas. It was an it was honor. A lot of new information. Yeah. Thank you.